Petersfield's Shine Radio. You are listening to Talking Books with Susie Wilde and Tim O'Kelly. Hello, I'm Susie Wilde and you're listening to Talking Books, where each month I pull a plum from an old tart, or vice versa. I'm not sure I'm going to comment on that. (laughs) I'm Tim O'Kelly of One Tree Books, your guide to what exciting books will be hitting our shelves next month. This month, Tim meets John Micklewright, author of The Opening Country, which I'm really clean to hear because I'm a big fan of walking, as you know. But if you want to know why that book particularly interests me, keep listening. So let's start with what we're currently reading. Susie? Well, I mentioned last month that I was about to start a course in writing a romantic novel, Tim, if you remember. Well, I've actually started it now and we've got to write a thousand words a day. But one of the things I chiefly love about it is that um, it's caused me to read in that genre. So I blamed Katie Marsh last time for getting me involved. And now I can blame Jenny Colgan, who's our sort of tutor for the course. And she is just absolutely brilliant. One of the things she absolutely says that we're not allowed to do is to kill anyone. But one of her favourite books, I know, I I don't mean literally, I mean in the book. Um, But the audio book of Me Before You, which I think I also mentioned by Jojo Moyes. Well, um, our producer, John, was talking just now about male and female fiction. And this, I would think, is squarely meant to be female fiction. But Richard, my husband, absolutely adored it and wouldn't let me listen to the last half hour unless he was there. And I'd already decided not to listen to it on the train going up on Friday because I knew I'd be in bits. I was in bits and so was Richard as well. It's brilliant. Have you read it? No, I haven't. I've never read any of her, her books, oh, actually. Honestly, it's I did. Jojo Moyes, I've heard of, obviously, before. Um, but honestly, this one, Me Before You, totally. Audiobook, very good. Well, I know, I know colleagues uh, at the shop here who've read, have read her books and really, really enjoy her writing. So it's about time I did. So I, because it's um, course led by Jenny Colgan, I happen to start with Little Beach Street Bakery because it's about bread. So why wouldn't I love it? And I realised I'll just skip through. There's Summer at Little Beach Street Bakery, the bookshop on the corner, the cafe by the sea. So you can see that it does what it says on the tin. And if you want... When I say comfort reading, I, that sounds so pejorative, actually, doesn't it? But... Sometimes you just want a book where you kind of get... Like Enid Blyton for grown-ups. Well, I think sometimes a gentler read, there's nothing wrong with that at all. And sometimes that's what you're in the mood for and that's what you need to read. Yes, and I commend it to everybody. It's interesting there's a whole genre of books about bookshops now. I know! There's... um, uh, and I've, I've read one or two, you know, quite entertaining, interesting, and they're very different from my experience of bookshops. I was, but, going to, I was but, just you know, going to say. You know what? There's probably lots of different types of bookshops out there. So, well, yeah. this is an aspirational bookshop because it's actually in an old baker's van. So what's not to like? She drives around the highlands of Scotland in a baker's van, falling in love with random train drivers and selling books. I mean, it's wonderful. Wouldn't you aspire to something like that? Absolutely. Right, OK, so all I'm going to do for the listener is just read a tiny, tiny bit um, of 
Jenny Colgan's biography because it totally gives a taste of the kind of woman she is, why I would love her and I, I think why they would love her as well. And I've read this to a couple of women friends who also go, yeah, what's not to like? Jenny eventually settled on the wettest of all these places she's travelled to and currently lives just north of Edinburgh with her husband, Andrew, her dog, Neville Shute, and her three children, Wallace, who is 14 and likes pretending to be 19 and not knowing what this embarrassing family thing is that keeps following him about. Michael Francis, who is 12 and likes making new friends on aeroplanes. And Delphine, who is 10 and is mostly raccoon, as far as we can tell so far. Things Jenny likes include cakes, far too much Doctor Who, wearing Converse trainers every day so that her feet are now just gigantic big flat pans, baths only slightly cooler than the surface of the sun and very, very long books. The longer the better. What's not to love? Absolutely. Over to you, Tim. Well, I've been reading... uh Actually, mainly non-fiction this month, which is which is strange for me. I normally, you know me, I'm normally mm. I'm normally like to get stuck into a good novel, mm. but for one reason or another, I've been I've been reading non-fiction. I read *The Aristocracy of Talent* by Adrian Woolridge, who we, we mentioned before, uh, a local author. He he uh, is the political editor of *The Economist* and an amazingly brilliant man who seems to know everything about modern history and modern politics. Um, and it's basically how meritocracy made the modern world. That sounds a bit dry, and it's not dry at all. He's uh, wonderfully readable um, and a great analyst. And in the best traditions of The Economist, it's, it's, it's not partisan at all. Um, it will appeal to the liberal and, and as well as the more conservative reader. And um, I, I just think he really, he really nails the subject brilliantly. So it's, a, it's also a good read, despite being... I think so, yes. If you like, if you like your modern history... Um, You'll enjoy this book. Okay. But also, if, you, if you're interested in politics or interested in the modern world at all, I think you'll enjoy the book. So uh, definitely one, one to recommend that one. Um, another question I've got for you. How many weeks do you think we're alive for? Oh, good grief. Um, On average. All right, weeks. Without, 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 without thinking. Without doing the maths. Um, 500,000. Okay. 500,000 weeks ago was, was before um, the first civilization. Uh, so you, you, oh. we're living on the savannah five hundred thousand weeks ago. But anyway, that's a that's another another point. It's four thousand weeks. In fact, is a life. I think it's three hundred ten thousand when the birth of civilization. Does everybody uh, get it wrong? Is that a lot of people do? So it's it's you're not alone. But it's interesting because it's the title of a book by Oliver Berkman, and the book is about saying we have four thousand weeks to live. Um, life is Make very life them. is very limited. Make the most of it. Um, and what you shouldn't do, he he suggests is obsess with to-do lists, um, (laughs) struggle against distraction, um, do all those things that we do with time, but actually just don't worry about getting everything done, just enjoy doing it. I think that's that's the the, the gist of it. But actually it's a whole book all about that. And so it's it's the opposite of of, um, how, of sort of time management style of, of living life. It's much more about being in the moment, I suppose, which is, what we're told to do that constantly by, by uh, mindfulness gurus, but um, he's a very good writer. Again, yeah. he, he writes. He, he's a journalist, and he he writes just writes really well, really very readable. And the other book, of course, I've been reading is which we're coming to shortly, The Opening Country, uh, by John Micklewright. But I won't start talking about that. At I've this heard stage. it's awfully good. It is awfully good. <laughs> this is Petersfield's radio station, Shine Radio. So time for our interview and we've been joined now by John Micklewright. 
who is Professor Emeritus at University College London. Hooray again, UCL! An economist working on poverty and inequality with a number of books on these subjects, but now turning to travel writing. His earlier posts included a dozen years working in Italy, in Florence, and a spell with the UN. He now lives in Winchester. You probably met Jenny Colgan, actually, in all your travels, John. Anyway, over to you, Tim. Well, um, hello, John. It's been, it's, it was, it's been really enjoyable reading your book. There are lots of questions, and I'm not quite sure where to start. But just tell us a bit about, about the, the, the idea behind the book in the first place. Well, I think writing the book, why did I write the book, can be split into two halves. It's why did I walk across France? And then why did I think to write a a book about it? The walking across France has roots way back in my childhood and teenage years of reading, um, in particular, a John Buchan book, uh, The House of the Four Winds, which has a wonderful description at the beginning of the book of the hero Jakey Galt's going on a walking tour across northern Europe and Buchan's descriptions of it filled me with teenage imagination of, of doing the same. And then later on I read, I suppose, Patrick Lee Fermor and his books about walking across Europe in the 1930s, uh, Laurie Lee, John Hillaby, and all of these things have filled me with the desire sometime to do the same myself. Skipping forward, I I lived in Italy, as Susie has mentioned, uh, for a dozen or so years. And when we moved back home to England in 2002, we kept the house that we'd been fortunate enough to buy in Italy. And for another dozen or so years, we're always trying to get out there and get across France as quickly as we could, or bypass France, fly over France, even better. And I realised that 25 years had passed with my simply ignoring France. So I thought, well, I'll rediscover France by walking across the country, travelling across France the slow way, and um, walking really is the way to get to know a country because you can absorb everything slowly, you can stop instantly, look at things and listen um, in a way that no other form of transport allows you to do. And you can go anywhere too on foot. So that's what led to the idea of crossing France. I mean, I, I loved, I mean, talking about the John Buchan connection, I loved your uh, description. And I think just, just outside Albeville, um, you, 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 were out, you were stuck in the middle of, middle of nowhere, really. And, and you just put your, your bedding down by a stream and just watched the, watched the stars and went to sleep and woke up when they, the cool air came down the valley and at six the next morning and off you were walking again. And I just think that's, that's a, that romantic idea of just, just, Putting your putting your putting your bedding down and just looking at the stars—it's just just wonderful. I'm, I'm, you didn't do that every night, I know, because you. But there's quite a few nights you spent out, didn't you? When starting out, I decided to plan as little as I could, and I had a rough route worked out, but uh, with the expectation I'd deviate off that um, uh, several times, and I and I did, and also without anywhere book to stay along the way, so as to give myself maximum flexibility now that of course conjures up the image of 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 uh, Patrick Lee Fermor or, or Jakey Galt in Buchan's book of just coming into a village and finding an inn and staying in it but country inns are not as uh, widespread <laughs> as they were in the 1930s and so I took a sleeping bag with me as insurance 
Yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's really interesting that because how much France has changed. Because one of the things, of course, about this book, as you, if when you really will find out, is that father, your father's diaries that that he wrote you know, 60, 70 years ago, um, you didn't actually look at until you'd come back from your walking. That's right. Um, and then, so they 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 don't they didn't actually impinge too much on your travelling, which I think was a really good thing. Had I read them beforehand, they'd have acted as a as a guidebook, and I really wanted to avoid looking at guidebooks before I went. But reading them after I came back um, allowed me to, I suppose, reconnect with him. And I thought about him when walking across France a fair bit because he he'd loved France; it was the country he loved above all others, and he loved walking. But then reading his diaries after I I, I came back sort of strengthened that feeling I mean, he, he died 25 years ago and um allowed me to sort of reconnect with him and, and and appreciate his love of nature and of france even more was he a buchan fan no not really um and um i remember asking him uh, when i was a teenager whether buchan was one of england's great writers and I can remember he he paused, smiled, and said, "No, he didn't quite see him like that." <laughs> the practicalities you go, you stop walking across France. You've 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 got your rucksack. You've got some good pair of stout pair of boots. Um, what else? Are you, what else are the key things you took with you? Smartphone. <laughs> That's something that Patrick Lee Fermore didn't have. Yes. <laughs> um, which of course makes it easier to find places to sleep as you go along. A stick. Not walking poles, which I hate, but a, a, a stick to fiddle with, twiddle, sound out the depth of water or mud on footpaths, squish at nettles, push yourself uphill as you're going along sometimes. Compass, surprisingly useful to orientate a map, to checking distant views, what are you looking at? Maps, uh, and of course, these days you can get digital maps on your smartphone so that's uh, the smartphone had a lot of uses the footpaths while you're thinking are quite well marked aren't they the grand randonnée so i've done some walking in France, yes and, I find and that is better than here better than here i think and and marked in that very distinctive way of the red and white paint flashes which is something i remembered from my childhood and the first holiday i had with my parents in France when I was I suppose about 12 and discovering these paths with these red and white flashes of paint that you could follow as if it was a treasure hunt. The paths, the French long distance paths, the Grand Randonnée are, are wonderful. This is a network crisscrossing the whole country and there's a, a map of all the long distance paths in France that I could trace a rough route before I started. Some of the time you walked with, with friends and sometimes you walked on your own and Obviously, with with contrasting experiences, I suppose. Yes, I mean, I I enjoy both very much. I mean, you walk with a an old friend for for a week, full of stories and banter and shared experiences, and also little sort of confidences from spending day after day with each other. You enter into those parts of each other's lives that had perhaps remained a bit hidden, and you learn something about this old friend that you didn't know before. But I also love walking by myself because you can just do exactly what you want the whole time. Fantastic. Yeah, no, I I certainly get that impression from the book that that 
there are times when you wake up and you think, oh, I'm, I think I might spend an extra day in in this town, or just or just think, well, actually, really, I want to push it. Push I want on. to do yes. twenty five, even thirty miles today because because I can and I'm feeling in that mood. And I think that 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 really comes across in the writing. Yes, and that wonderful feeling of, of of freedom that you get when walking by yourself, which with a, with a friend, inevitably you don't. Everything to a certain extent is a compromise about. How far are you going to walk that day? Where you'll stop? What restaurant you'll eat in in the evening, or or what have you? Yeah. So in the book, there's there's plenty about about um, French history, uh, the French landscape and geography and geology, um, and lots about butterflies, which obviously obviously interest you. But what is it that you really learned about the French when you were been walking all this time? Well, or about France? About say. France, or the French? Well, both. I learned. A lot about French history that I didn't know before uh, through looking at uh, war memorials, for example, incredibly informative about the passage of the First World War. And uh, most memorials list, for example, the um, deaths by year. And the First World War began in August 1914. And yet 1914, with only five months, was I think the second highest death toll of all all of the war years. And you, having seen that evidence on a war memorial with, say, 50, 60 names, you can then, with your smartphone, there and then that evening, get on the web and check out the pattern of deaths across the year. So history, um, economic and social history, the canal system, which you keep on coming across and when walking across the country, and, and you think about... Uh, and, and start to investigate why that canal was built, when it was built, etc. Um, social history, uh, the lavoirs, the public wash houses that every every uh, village has, and um, that makes you think about when did they arrive, when were they built, the developments in public health during the Third Empire in the nineteenth century, the French themselves, um, and. Uh, I learnt more French language in order to speak with the French themselves. So that was something that, of course, has receded a bit since, but I've retained a good deal of. Right. And what was the most surprising thing you found out about yourself? I think that I, I was apprehensive about walking by myself. And that was one of the reasons that I arranged uh, or invited and uh, arranged with friends to come with me for about half the time so I had about five weeks walking by myself about five weeks with other people but I learned that I really enjoyed walking by myself which is something I'd only done before for two or three hours at a time I'd never walked day after day by myself and that was that was quite surprising and and nice to, to know that I quite enjoyed my own company I was going to say when you talk about 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 the French and the and the, the current French political state of you know the, the gilets jaunes uh, and their um, sort of French nationalism and the way things are moving at the moment in France. Um, have you got any thoughts about that, or or not really? Well, I think it's very clear that the, in the rural areas, people feel proud and prou- proud of their heritage, proud of the fact they're they're keeping going the rural areas after after decades and decades of rural depopulation and the gilet jaune was very much a rural movement or is very much a rural movement and sparked first by the rise in petrol prices 
And um, that sort of dependence on the car, for example, is is something that walking through villages in in underpopulated and still depopulating parts of the massive central, one is very aware of that they need a car to go anywhere and anything that's sort of jacking up the prices. That makes me feel pretty irritated about. And another just a question about the writing, which to go back to that. Did you find um, the writing as hard or as easy as the walking? I mean, which, which, was, which was the tough bit? <laughs> In one sense, having had a career as an academic, the writing wasn't difficult. In the, the, the prospect of trying to write you know, 70,000 words, I didn't find off-putting because that's what my career had involved, involved doing. But as my, my wife put it, it's got to be interesting this time, John. <laughs> and, <laughs> it was relying on wife. And um, so that was a challenge to make it interesting in, the se- in one sense, in that I had to relax and be more informal and, 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 and leave behind the academic straitjacket. And I took that seriously. I took a couple of Guardian masterclasses, which are really excellent in one in nature writing and one in travel writing, and they helped a lot. I mean, some of it was uh, no doubt what you get in a standard creative writing course, but um, the rest of both these courses, exactly what I, want, I wanted to write, how, how to write effectively about a journey, about travel, and how to write effectively about nature. How is it structured? Because what worries me about travel writing is it can be a bit picaresque and sort of and then and then and then and then so how did you organize that well it's structured um chronologically uh as i think any travel log uh would would always be but um time is stretched or compressed all the time like a concertina so something that happened over the course of only half an hour was worth writing about for several pages that happens and if several days or even a week passed with nothing much of particular interest then that's massively compressed and nothing much is written about it but also I'm sort of cutting backwards and forwards in time to childhood memories time spent walking with my father my father's diaries so I think uh, as well as branching off sideways into other subjects, into literature, film, history. And so I think the the, the risk, which is, is certainly there, of it becoming far too linear, is uh, is avoided, I hope. I definitely think you managed to avoid that, because I think there's, as you say, there's lots of little um, paths and byways that, that, you t- that you go down, uh, metaphorically, not <laughs> literally. And so that there is... There's plenty of variety in the book. I think that's that's an important part of it. John, I've given the game away by saying how much I love bread. <laughs> and one of the things I love about France is actually the boulangeries, etc. So what did you mostly eat? What was your favourite? Is the food as good as it used to be when you just rock up at some tiny village? At lunchtime, I always treat it as just a refuelling exercise. And uh, I would just eat a staple of bread and cheese and tomato, I think, almost every oh, lunchtime. Lovely. And when buying bread in the morning in the, in the patisserie or boulangerie, you have to ignore all those beautiful cream-filled patisseries <laughs> that, or macarons that, that won't fit in your rucksack anyway. And by lunchtime, you probably don't want to eat that sort of stuff. Anyway, in the evenings, um, 
typically in the smaller villages, you just have to take what's going. I mean, there's very little choice often. And surprisingly enough, that may often mean pizza. There's an enormous amount of pizza that gets eaten in, in France. Um, I think it's meant to be more pizza in France than in the USA. It's quite extraordinary. Good grief. Uh, it's not something I'd realised. I'm a bit devastated about that. <laughs> <laughs> I shouldn't exaggerate. I had lots of nice, humble meals, regional, different regional stuff. So chicken and cider in Normandy, Turgul, that wonderful Norman rice pudding, for example. When you say just bread and cheese, but I mean in France, cheese is is is. Um, <laughs> I mean, there's a so many cheeses to choose from. Aren't there? I mean, there's hundreds of cheeses, aren't there? Absolutely. And um, what did De Gaulle say? How can you govern a country that has more than two hundred and fifty cheeses, or something, something like that? Something yeah. like that. I can't <laughs> quite remember the line. <laughs> Le Grand's fromage himself. Yeah. And now the million dollar question, <laughs> we, we, we torment all our guests with. John, if you were sent alone to a desert island, when you know now you'd be happy in your own company, what book would you want to have with you? Well, I'm tempted to take a meaty classic. Um, I reread War and Peace while walking across France, and uh, that was a success because rereading classics isn't always a success. I'm rereading uh, Hardy's The Return of the Native at the moment, um, which so beautifully evokes the Dorset countryside where, where I was born and bred. And so something of that sort is tempting, but I've decided against it. <laughs> I think I'd like some humour to lighten my days. So I'd like to take The Little World of Don Camillo by Giovanni Goreschi. Um, these gentle short stories of the tussle in a Po Valley village just after the war between uh, Don Camillo, the priest, and Peponi, the communist mayor. And that would remind me of my years in Italy. It reminded me of my mother, too. She introduced me to Don Camillo. And um, the, the heading of every story has a beautiful little line drawing done by um, Guareschi. And I think I could try and learn to draw with a bit of charcoal from my campfire <laughs> With this and will you read it in Italian? Mm, tempting, but maybe I'd stick with the English. I think we'd let him have both, don't you, Tim? I think you're allowed. You're allowed. I think you can have it in Thank you. <laughs> that was brilliant, John. Thank you so much. That was really interesting. Thank you. Thank you very much. Petersfield's Shine Radio. Well, now it's our time for Tim to tell us what's coming up to look out for so over to you tim well i've got a few a few things a few good books coming out this this month um there's a paperback called girl a by abigail dean um it's a bit like that emma donoghue book the room don't know if you remember Mm -hmm. but it's girl a is is a girl who who survives this traumatic uh incident of family um appalling things that go on in her family um and it starts with her going to the prison where her mother's been imprisoned for some years to collect her mother's belongings after her death. So it's a it's a so it's not a, prison imprisoned in she, a home. She's been in prison. She has been in prison, right? Because okay. of what she was complicit in. Gotcha. Okay. Before the book starts, without giving the plot away. So right. so there's a lot going on, um, and it's a it's a it's a pretty it's a pretty tough tough read, but it's 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 well done. It's gripping and and very insightful. So recommend that one. Um, Spider Woman 
by Lady Hale, who was the head of the Supreme Court. Um, she's the first woman to reach that that pinnacle, and there's a lot of about being being a woman in a in a in a very male world, the, the world of the law. Um, she was most famous, of course, for delivering the unanimous decision of the Supreme Court that that the Prime Minister, um, the Prime Minister's closing of Parliament um, was illegal. Do you remember the, the prorogation was yep. illegal? An interesting life she has uh, from from humble beginnings in Yorkshire. Um, it's written in that very clear, unemotional, and very impressive way that she has. So uh, I, I again, I really enjoyed that. I'm a big fan of James Holland, as you know. Um, who, the, the the historian who writes a lot about the Second World War. He's the brother of Tom, who writes about thousands of years ago. Incidentally, he's also the great nephew of the first Briton to um, to ride in the Tour de France, Tour oh. de France in, in 1937. But that's another story. He's written another book um, about the Second World War, about particularly about a particular regiment, the Sherwood Foresters, um, who were a, a sort of yeoman regiment in a sleepy backwater in the Midlands made up of farmers and part-timers, who became one of the most successful tank regiments of the Second World War. Um, the book takes you from D-Day to the end of the war, so it's quite detailed about a small period of time. But they had incredibly high casualties and, and showed extraordinary bravery, and it's a, it's, a, it's a cracking read. So it is called Brothers in Arms um, by James Holland. And the last book I was going to mention is The Magician, uh, by Colin Tabin. I'm told that's by my Irish friends. That's how you meant to pronounce his name. Um, although I never used to pronounce it like that. Uh, it's it's a sort of it's a novel about a real person, about Thomas Mann, the 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 uh, German novelist. Um, he previously wrote a book about Henry James, so he a novel about Henry James. So he he kind of he's he knows knows the territory. Um, he he's a very elegant writer, and I'm really looking forward to reading because I haven't read it yet. Um, it's, it's he always gets great reviews, and um, so those are my those are my uh, four books that I'm that I'm getting excited about for for October. Well, and report back. I will. On the, what did you say? Column to bean. Column to bean. Column to bean. Lovely. It's rather nice, isn't it? it? Rolls off the tongue. Um, in fact, one of the audio books I'm listening to now is by someone called Vary McDonald, um, and it's spelt M H. A-I-R-I and I thought they said Barry McDonald at first and I thought oh no I've got the wrong audiobook but it's Barry Barry so there you go okay so now it's turned for Susie what what backlisted book are you going to tell us about today well Tim I've been reading Call for the Dead by John le Carre which I thought I had read but actually I had not I'd gone straight into the whole Tinker Taylor um John le Carre thing um which is brilliant and this is the first book he wrote i mean not just the first in the george smiley canon but um the first of these and i found it absolutely fascinating i found it fascinating first as a writer because i love reading people's debut novels and just sort of seeing how they then progress and it also gives me some hope that were none of us very good when we sort of start. We do actually get better. But these days, so much emphasis is placed on the debut novel that you kind of forget that one gets better. And do you think he does get better? I certainly think he gets better. Right. I found this quite thin. 
Now, what I well, it's quite short compared to the other other. It's the, a novella. Tim I mean, Taylor. Tim's looking at it. It's it's tiny. It is you know, it's a tiny amount. I will tell you how many pages it is. It's um a hundred and fifty pages. So you could read it in an afternoon. And actually, I think it would be better if one did. So one of the things that I would say about a novice writer as he comes to it is he totally knows his stuff, but it's presented... Chapter one is called A Brief History of George Smiley. And it's presented as you might do a character study for your main point of view character, your protagonist in what you're going to write. But it's actually all there. But the quality of the writing is good enough that it sort of carries you through. But, I mean, just a tiny example of that is the very beginning. When Lady Anne Serkham married George Smiley towards the end of the war, she described him to her astonished Mayfair friends as breathtakingly ordinary. When she left him two years later in favour of a Cuban motor racing driver, she announced enigmatically that if she hadn't left him then, she never could have done. And Viscount Sawley made a special journey to his club to observe that the cat was out of the bag. This remark, which enjoyed a brief season as a mo, can only be understood by those who knew Smiley. Short, fat and of a quiet disposition, he appeared to spend a lot of money on really bad clothes, which hung about his squat frame like skin on a shrunken toad. Sawley, in fact, declared at the wedding that Circum was mated to a bullfrog in a sou'wester. And Smiley, unaware of this description, had waddled down the aisle in search of the kiss that would turn him into a prince. So, yes, you see what he's doing, but I think it, it's brilliantly done. Um, so I love the development of Le Carre as a writer, George Smiley as a character. And I would say about this book, that it's almost a police procedural more than a spy thriller. In fact, the, the policeman in it reminded me rather like um, sort of Conan Doyle when Sherlock Holmes goes off to keep bees in Sussex. It's sort of this, this Met police officer aspires to do the same sort of thing, but in suburbia. And there is the most brilliant description of suburbia. So instead of doing one chunk, as I normally do, I'm going to do little bits and pieces. So here's a little bit about Merrydale Lane. Merrydale Lane is one of those corners of Surrey where the inhabitants wage a relentless battle against the stigma of suburbia. Trees fertilised and cajoled into being in every front garden half obscure the pokey character dwellings which crouch behind them. The rusticity of the environment is enhanced by the wooden owls that keep guard over the names of houses and by crumbling dwarves indefatigably poised over goldfish ponds. The inhabitants of Merrydale Lane do not paint their dwarfs, suspecting this to be a suburban vice, nor for the same reason do they varnish the owls, but wait patiently for the years to endow these treasures with an appearance of weathered antiquity, until one day even the beams on the garage may boast of beetle and woodworm. So, you know, isn't it? Isn't it already really good? And the last bit I'm going to read, I don't think I've got anything else that I want to say, but just just picture um, where we got to with Sir Alec Guinness and then very much to do with Gary Oldman when it was all much slicker and, and so sort of 60s and so on. This is a, a bygone era that even I am not quite old enough to remember. The Fountain Cafe, proprietor Miss Gloria Adam, was all Tudor and horse brasses and local honey at sixpence more than anywhere else. 
Miss Adam herself dispensed the nastiest coffee south of Manchester and spoke of her customers as my friends. Miss Adam did not do business with friends, but simply robbed them, which somehow added to the illusion of genteel amateurism, which Miss Adam was so anxious to preserve. Her origin was obscure, but she often spoke of her late father as the Colonel. It was rumoured among those of Miss Adams' friends who had paid particularly dearly for their friendship that the colonelcy in question had been granted by the Salvation Army. (laughs) I love it. I think we needed a bit of humour, didn't we? Great. Well, thank you, Susie. That's really... uh... Well, it wet my appetite to read it. Read it. I've read most of the Le Carre novels, but I never read that one. So maybe it's time I did. So thank you, Susie. Thank you, John. Um, next month, I'll have suggestions for books that will make great Christmas presents. And we're waiting to hear if we might have... Actually, Tim doesn't even know this. We might have a very special guest. A clue. It isn't Richard Osman. Oh, dear. <laughs> <laughs> You've been listening to Talking Books with Susie Wilde and Tim O'Kelly. Produced by John Wellsman. Explore the treasured countryside around Petersfield with Susie Wilde and her Labrador, Rain. Rain and I have come up into the hangars. Bablet, come along. Good girl. Join me as I walk with my Labrador through our varied county. I'm looking at a really beautiful, cloudless blue sky. Landscape is recollection too, and I love to share that with you for a few minutes each week. Oh, Rain, isn't this lovely? What might it be? Susie Wilde's Wild Walks. It went that way. New every week from Petersfield's Shine Radio and always online at shineradio.uk. Right, come on then, let's go.